to that, and Congressman Bratt uh, said, well, you know, that's all well and good to know your interview, but uh, it's nice to know what we actually do ourselves. So, uh, Congressman Bratt is also Dr. Bratt, and earned a PhD in economics, and it's always nice to be here that actually people on the Hill know something about uh, economics. Of course, he was elected in uh, 2014, and uh, he was uh, famous for knocking off a sitting um, um, primary, during primary, a majority leader. Uh, he serves on the uh, House Committee for the Budget, for Education, the Workforce, for Small Business, he's small business building here. Before that, uh, in his uh, role as an economist, he uh, did forecast uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, and he's also the president of the Virginia Association of Economics. Economics I'm sorry. So, uh, I'd like to Congrats to say a few words before I introduce our speaker. Thank you all for coming out. How many of you are grad students in this room? Raise your hand up. 
All right, this is great. I'm, I'm glad you, I was a professor for 20 years, as you can say, that rain off making about two hours straight down 95. And so uh, my natural inclination to be scared of things, especially if they look like that. I'm still getting nervous when I get called into the dean's office. It was never a good time, even at faculty, as you all. Any, anybody been called into the dean's office? Yes, very congratulations. <laughs> Just checking to make sure you're all good. Well, today uh, we're here uh, to uh, listen to Mr. Walsh, and he's got a very interesting background, and I, I don't want to go off on my bio, but I've been all over the map, right? I grew up in Michigan. I went to uh, Minnesota for high school, back to Michigan for college, worked at Arthur Anderson in Detroit and Chicago for a little bit. And then uh, at the end of the year, when I saw going to seminary, and all the partners in the room, holy moly, what's that all about? So I went out to Princeton Seminary, and then from there I went to a PhD in economics. So they said, what's that all about? Right? And then I'm from economics, I worked at the World Bank and Army a little bit, and then taught for 20 years, roughly speaking. So I've been all over the map. And I'm a liberal arts guy for reading. You can all read my book. Sold at least 12 copies already. <laughs> Sold American Underdog, right, for obvious reasons. But you'll just see it's a uh, liberal arts uh, investigation. And I argue the West is basically you put together the Judeo Christian tradition with Greek reason, and you get the West. And pop culture uh, is kind of new, right? So the liberal arts is the broad end the investigation of truth and reality into all its forms, right? The hard sciences, the social sciences, the humanities, etc. And uh, Randolph Macon, that was the beauty of being a small school. I was friends with the guy who ran running the uh, popular culture program. He's world famous. He runs the Disney uh, program. And uh, he's got the encyclopedia of pop culture. And uh, us old folks, I'm relatively old, right? I'm 50 something, brother. Uh, this is all new ones, right? And this new way of communication using the web and tweets and all this stuff and pop culture and what's going on. And how that intersects with world politics, I have no idea. So I'm dying to read the book and all that. And I, in the introductory, the title of his book is The Devil's Pleasure Palace. Right? So the seminary background, it's very intriguing to me. I can't wait to hear the comments. And then down below, he says, The Devil's Pleasure Palace and its pending sequel, The Fiery Angel, comma, as well as the Trump phenomenon. Y'all get the joke here. You see it. The, the Fiery Angel, right? So it's, it's good you put this Trump after the fire angel instead of after the devil's pleasure pact. That's a timing could have gone both ways on the intro. And so uh, I think it's an honor for, for us to all uh, welcome Mr. Walsh here today and hear these connections. Uh, the liberal arts has always informed the way we view reality. Not enough people pay attention to that. I think we'll all be forced to pay attention to that, right? From burning all the way over to Trump on the political spectrum. Their views on foreign policy and world politics uh, will determine a reality, right, for the next decade at least, and probably what they put in place for far longer than that. So it's very important that we put on our creative thinking caps, and so with that, I'll get out of the way and introduce the real speaker here. Thank you all for showing up, and uh, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you very much. All right, uh, thank you, Congressman. Um, I appreciate that perspective. Uh, I wish more people in the Congress and the government in Germany. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Michael Walsh. Uh, at IWP for the last 10 days, it's been all Michael Walsh all the time. Uh, we've had him uh, give a couple of uh, talks at the Institute on uh, various uh, topics. He's also going to provide some, uh, basically, symposia for our students over the next couple of days as well. Looking at things like Marcus Lewis and the 
so forth. Um, Michael is a polymath. He's a kind of fascinating guy. He uh, was a music critic and a foreign correspondent for Time Magazine, when that was a real magazine. And, you know, he, he, uh, he was uh, in uh, Behind the Iron Curtain, when the Iron Curtain fell. He uh, has a, a he speaks German and French. I'm sorry, German and Russian, I'm sorry. Usually that. He is, um, as I say, in his spare time, he just writes and writes and writes. He's uh, written, as I say, this, as Congress mentioned, book on, on the Devil's Pleasure Palace. He's also written a couple novels. He's uh, got screenplays out there. Uh, and he just, uh, he, he, the idea here is something that we don't pay enough attention to. And that's the idea that when we focus on politics, and that's important, we don't really realize that culture is upstream from politics. And I think of all the people that I know here, there's uh, no one who's pointed that out more clearly than Michael. So please welcome, uh, help me and welcome to Thank you all for coming. Thanks to Congressman Brad for his kind hosting of this event, and to my hosts at the uh, Institute of World Politics, Dr. John Chosky and Dean Owens, for organizing this. And thank you again, all of you, for coming to hear me talk today. Um, I, I think we've been set up uh, well so you know what the sub substance of my talk is going to be, and then I invite you to uh, think questions and comments and uh, terms of the program or whatever seems to be uh, your reaction to what I'm about to say, and we have a vigorous discussion in the, uh, in the last few minutes, a lot of to us. Uh, a little bit of background for me, as you've heard from that, I, I have a kind of eclectic background. I was born at Camp Machine, North Carolina. My father was a Marine Corps officer. And grew up in duty stations all over the country, mostly in nice places like San Diego and Honolulu, Hawaii, but also here in uh, Arlington, Virginia, and uh, elsewhere. I've lived in New York City for a long time. I now currently spend half of my time about in Los Angeles working in the motion picture business. Um, so all of these things have kind of come together in my mind. And when I sat down to write Devil's Pleasure Palace, I envisioned it as a way of explaining the importance of the arts in our political culture. I've come into politics sort of willy-nilly. I uh, began writing a column for National Review under the name David Kahane, which was, uh, the, he's the name of the screenwriter who gets murdered in the movie, The Player. Uh, and I also used him as a kind of parody of a Hollywood liberal explaining politics to super conservatives. Uh, so this became quite popular, and after a while, I started writing under my own name, and then uh, I became a columnist for the New York Post. Right now, I write on uh, politics twice a month in the Sunday New York Post. <laughs> and currently I'm with PJ Media as one of the editors and columnists there. So that's the, the brief biography. I did work for Time Magazine for 16 years, and I was a classical music critic for 25. I'm a pianist in addition to uh, some of my other talents, and uh, have enjoyed putting all of this together in, in, in a kind of unique career so far uh, that's, that's been very rewarding. And the success of Devil's Pleasure Palace has come to the attention of uh, Congress of the United States is uh, very, very gratifying because it is a pet peeve of mine. So let's start this, and that would be Sputnik. I was born in 1949, so I'm 67 years old. I'm a 
at the front end of the dating room, uh, who are responsible, by the way, for every single political bill in the United States currently. You're witnessing the war of the baby boomers. And part of that war was we were uh, sent to kindergarten, we were four or five, and you came to class, and there were kids in class. Right? So you immediately hated all of your colleagues, and we've been battling each other since, since those days. But what really happened was, of course, the Russian launch of Sputnik in the late 50s, and the U.S. attempt to catch up to the advantage of technology. And us baby boomers, we baby boomers, were enlisted into this cause. And uh, those of us who weren't particularly scientifically oriented resented this. And I felt, as I went through high school, partly spent here at the Dish Profile High School in Arlington, that the arts were being underemphasized at the expense of the sciences. And that we were therefore, and this is my central thesis today, we were missing a crucial element of what it means to be human, what it means to be political, what it means to be American. And that if we only dealt with the slide rule culture, which is what we were handed in those days, then we were missing something really important. And in fact, I'm going to argue here that it's the most important thing that we can experience as human beings. So the Douglas Pledge of College was written to kind of illustrate this. It's a walk through Topics such as uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, which I'm sure you may have read in high school, um, Church's Faust, the Operas of Wagner, uh, the work of the Frankfurt School theoreticians and philosophers who brought essentially cultural Marxism to America and installed it in the university system. Uh, it's almost like a long jazz solo riff on these topics, and it, uh, it found its audience, and now I'm writing the second book in this. Uh, of what will be a two-part thing called the Fire Angel, which is where we go from here. So Devil's Question House is an analysis of the problem, Fire Angel, which is uh, an opera by Prokofiev. I stole that title from Sergei Prokofiev. Um, we'll give the sequel to it. So I was just saying, Congressman Brad, I was down near his district over the weekend. I was at Petersburg, Virginia, which is where the Civil War ended, essentially. Uh, I've never been there before. Uh, but I've been reading the new biography of General Grant, who's now my, I'm like Grant's biggest fanboy. Uh, he's now my superhero. And the first place I went was City Point, which is this jet that sticks out into the confluence of James and the Automatic Rivers, which is quiet now. It's a farmhouse where Grant's headquarters was, it's still there. But then it was one of the largest railheads and one of the largest shipping ports in the United States and happened overnight, essentially, because Grant's background as a quartermaster, as a man who understood logistics, made him understand that this place right here, by taking Petersburg, he would cut off Richmond, and by cutting off Richmond, he would end the Civil War. After banging his head against Lee in the wilderness in a cold harbor, he finally realized this was the way to get the war over. So he combined all of the things that he knew and ended the war. Uh, that was the most merciful and most humane way to do it. And as we know, the attitude towards the Confederacy was one of great magnitude. Uh, as I watched this, I thought, this is putting into practice what we know as Americans. Because Grant wasn't just a military guy. He wasn't just a general. He wasn't a butcher. He was a great lover of novels and plays. He always went to the theater. You read in his biographies, 
how many times he seeks out to go play. And in fact, Lincoln invited him to our American president. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, our American president, the night that Lincoln was assassinated, Grant turned down because Julia, his wife, wasn't feeling well that night. Uh, Webb was very well read. He's a great horseman. He had all these talents that combined into one of the greatest figures in American history. And his political ethos came from that. Now, you can argue about Grant's success as president. He had a very difficult hand to follow. Lincoln had been assassinated just a few days into his second term. Lincoln had a Democrat as vice president who blocked a lot of the reconstruction plans that Lincoln and Grant together had worked out at City Point. Lincoln came to visit him. So Grant spent eight years fighting, trying to reunite the country and fighting the opposition to uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the passage of the Amendments. So however we think he did as a politician, uh, he was a product of his culture, and that's my point. It's that Andrew Breitbart, who I knew well uh, and worked with when we founded BigJournalism.com, which is now part of the Breitbart News Network, always used to say that uh, politics is downstream from culture. That the culture, however defined, and we'll move towards the definition of it, is what creates our politics. We don't have politics in the back. And these politics come from somewhere. They come from the nature of the people that we are. They come from our Western shared heritage, Thomas and Grat just said, starting with the Greeks and moving forward. They are, I argue, particularly Western in origin. If you follow them from the Greek city-states to the Roman Republic, uh, to Hellenistic civilization, to the Roman Republic, to the Roman Empire, to the Holy Roman Empire, they are passed down in a very clear geographical and historical line of succession to us, to this complex of buildings that represents that Greek classical ideal that we have turned democracy. Now, where does this notion of politics come from? Well, it's interesting to note that Aristotle writes two books. And Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great. There's a connection already. But Aristotle writes politics and he writes ethics. And he means both of them to be seriously, uh, poetic rather, and he means them to be taken seriously as a unit, as something that informs the basis of the civilization. Aristotle passes this on to Alexander. Alexander conquers the Persian Empire, conquers the known world, conquers, uh, creates Hellenistic Greek civilization, and paves the way for later Roman civilization. So politics is just a way of organizing ourselves into units that, that are based on these shared cultural principles. And these cultural principles, are based on myth, aren't they, and legend. You all know the Iliad, the Odyssey. We all know Homeric stories, the non-Homeric stories, part of Greek mythology. Um, the notion of man's relationship with the gods is crucial to the founding of Athenian democracy. It, it is Athenian democracy. You're reading Aeschylus um, for the new book and, and to go through the Osiah, to go through those three incredibly dramatic and very focused, specific plays is to witness the origin of so much of our political culture today. Back to Sputnik, the, prob the problem was we were cut off from this, I would argue, by Sputnik. 
assistive sciences and on clinical studies, uh, on process, on all of these elements that denature what our real politics is about, which is our culture and the preservation of our culture. Which gets me to this point. You cannot have foreign policy or domestic policy without knowing what you defend. You can't defend it in a vacuum. So if you can't speak to your culture, then you can't defend it properly. Therefore, I've always argued that the arts should have at least equal primacy with the sciences in school. One way to articulate this is more Mozart schools through metal detectors. Uh, that they educate, they civilize in a neutral sense the youth to understand what is the wellspring of this culture which, for which I'm being asked to fight. You're all in the fight. So you all work and study here on the hill, that's a crucial thing. And we need to re replace that primacy of the arts. It was certainly true in the 19th century. For good and for ill, you can view the entire political history of the 19th century as an artistic revolution. It's very, very easy to do that, and I'll make that case very briefly. Art, politics, let's just do a thought experiment. We have the we have the Odyssey with the Iliad, so the war between Troy and Greece. Then the Odyssey, Ulysses is trying to come home. What happens to the Trojans? Well, we have the poem by Virgil, the Aeneid, which causes that Aeneas leaves Troy and founds Rome. So, right from the start, we have the connection between the Greeks and the Romans. And what's the first line of the Aeneid? Arma, Vivumque, Kamo. I sing of arms and the man. So it's Politics and art are inseparable from the instant that civilization is found. The Aeneid is the foundational myth poem of Rome. And from Rome, we get the very architecture that we are in right this moment. So while it may seem a long time ago, 2,000 plus years ago, it's very, very close to us and in the language that we are using in the political discussions that we are having. I somewhat chauvinistically have said this is a purely Western idea. It's hard to transfer Western democracy to countries not particularly, uh, that have not grown up in that same Western tradition. It is possible. India, for example, has been a sterling example of the exportation of, of plebiscitary democracy uh, into a different environment. But for the purposes of my talk today, for the purposes of the books that I'm writing, I'm really concentrating on the Western tradition. And what is that tradition? What makes Western culture different? The hero. So the heroic narrative is what I call the word narrative, the primal narrative. If you go back through Western culture, before religion, certainly before the birth of Christ, you find the Christ-like figure, not theologically, narratively, in every myth and legend. Uh, I lived a lot of time in Ireland. I was lucky enough to rebuild my great-grandmother's birthplace, so I now get the uh, cows in the Aran Islands out of my dining room window. Cows are especially attractive sometimes when you're hungry in your dining room. So. Uh, it's very convenient. Uh, 
So as a result, I'm very close to the sources of Irish myth, one of the uh, legendary places in Irish history, the hill of the Tua Gadamon is literally outside my window. And the Tua Gadamon were conquerors and gods of Ireland before uh, the Celts arrived. So you can look out and see a place that was immortalized in legend, uh, treated in part by Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, because he came to that part of Ireland a lot, uh, and it's now sitting there. So you're never very far away from the roots of your culture if you look for it. Sometimes you get cut off and you don't look for it. But that heroic narrative is Western culture. It is. We have a system here in this country where the president is obviously the primary person in, in the United States. He is the hero of our story, whether we like him or whether we don't like him. It doesn't That heroic figure can be, oh, it can be Ulysses. Ulysses is a character that doesn't want to fight, fights, brings down Troy with the Trojan horse. All he wants to do is go home to his wife. And it takes him years and years and years and years to do it. Finally, he does. He encounters the suitors who are trying to marry Penelope and steal his fortune, and he sorts them out. He becomes from, from a inauspicious beginning of someone who is almost cowardly and not wanting to go to the Trojan War, he becomes the hero of the Trojan War. Uh, the Chanson de Renan, for example, in French literature, is about Roland the Knight, who is left behind with the detachment of Charlemagne's soldiers and pulled off the invading Moors. And Roland sacrifices his life in order to save his comrades and then allowed Charlemagne the victory uh, that is to come and push back the Islamic conquest in the 9th century. Uh, Western literature is filled with these characters. They sacrifice themselves in war. They, they give up everything that they knew and loved in order to answer a higher calling. And this is our heroic narrative. Let me just uh, read you briefly here something I wrote in Devil's Wedge Balance. That gets to what I'm saying. We uh, tend to think now, especially in this hyper media environment, that concept is a bad thing. I guess maybe we were all raised that way. Well, you were. I wasn't. We had 80 kids in our kindergarten class. So there were a lot of conflicts. But maybe now in, a, in smaller generations, there's less conflict. Uh, but as I wrote in the New York Post last Sunday, conflict is a good thing, it is a Western thing. It is the thing that makes the system work. Consensus doesn't. It's an illusion. And it's something we should not see. That's why we have two political parties. They necessarily want every member of Congress to work together. They want a resolution by democratic means of arguments that have much going for them on both sides. So what I say here is conflict is the essence of history but also of drama. Now this gets me back to my main point, that the dramatic techniques, the stories we tell, are the politics that we live. Without conflict, there can be no progress. We all just sat around, what would we do? You know, there has to be conflict. Hey, there's a rock in the middle of the road, but what are we gonna do about it? Well, we can go around it, but it's a pain. Yeah, but well, why don't we just get rid of it? So they blow it up, or they move it aside, or they do something so that Progress can happen. 
There can be no history without conflict. Without history, there can be no culture. Without culture, there can be no civilization. In this world, any other possible world in the universe is or can be static. You're either growing or you're not growing. You're either moving forward or you're not. Without the cultural artifact of drama, there is no civilization. The least dramatic place on Earth is the Garden of Eden. Only after Eve takes the apple are we fully human when conflict enters humanity. So there's a lot of this sort of theological discussion in Devil's Pleasure Palace as well about what it means to be fully human. I won't go into that today, but I want to stick with the point of drama, that drama drives politics. Just take the media, for example. I was in the media for a long time, 25 years with the so-called mainstream media, 16 at a time. The media thrives on drama. Uh, it pitches now every story as a conflict between good and evil, doesn't it? Just think about Trump's evil, Democrats are good. Democrats are evil, Trump's good. Anyone who wants to rescind uh, Obamacare is evil. Uh, anyone who doesn't is evil. We, we argue about this constantly, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing, because that is the essence of civilization. It's the essence of our politics. <clears throat> Let's think for a minute effect of the arts had on more recent history. In the 19th century, there was a year of revolution, 1848. It was one of the great revolutionary years. Started in France, spread all over Europe. Who led that revolution? Politicians? Arts. Who was one of the great leaders of the, of the revolution of 1848? Ricardo and you may think of him as just an opera composer, but he did think of himself that way. Found himself as a political thinker, as a dramatist, and as a poet, only secondarily as a musician. And he was agitating in Saxony, where he's from, for political change. He was a radical leftist by our standards. You know, you can't use left and right, conservative, liberal, aligned previous eras. It's only partly helpful. It's also partly received. And in that revolution of 1848, Wagner was a wanted man. He fled. Um, he took refuge with friends. He wrote voluminously letters, treatises, pamphlets, opera librettos, music. Where do you find the time to do all this? I once asked the great British polymath, Jonathan Miller, I said, Jonathan, how did you do, how did you do all these? And Jonathan said, no television, which is actually the truth. Uh, Hitler, for example, was a great Wagner fan. This is often used to research Wagner uh, to call into his artistic achievements into question. Of course, Wagner was long dead by the time Hitler arose. But Hitler's love for Wagner, to show you the potency of art, what did Hitler want to do with Germany? What was the thousand-year Reich supposed to be? We see it's in the wrong end of the telescope now because we know the end. Hitler's idea was to recreate the glory of medieval pagan Germany. 
in the United States Center Fund number, which is one of Wagner's main authors. So this is, again, sort of this hail to German art. What he staged instead was Greer Memory, which is the last of the authors of the Ring Cycle in which the world is destroyed through hubris. But if you don't think with the National Socialist German Workers' Party wasn't obsessed with drama, you don't know the politics of Germany in the 1930s. From the uniforms they wore, from the Roman salute that they gave, from the architecture of the buildings, this was all an attempt to stage an artistic revolution because Hitler considered himself a visual artist on a vast industrial scale. And that's key to understanding. It's a lot that a lot of times we miss that point about the horror that Germany turned into. But that it started with an idea to try to do, in their minds, to recreate the glory that was once old Germany. Uh, I spent some time in this book on Goethe, too, uh, Goethe, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. We think of him as kind of a dusty old guy today who lived in the late uh, 18th and early 19th century. He lived quite a, quite a long life and was the chief intellectual of Weimar, uh, Weimar where he lived, not Weimar Republic. Weimar, Germany, which was a very civilized and cultured place. Here's uh, a novel when he was young. It's called The Sorrows of Young Werther. He lied in this human Werther. Uh, and it's about a, a boy who falls in love with the girl. It's a boy meets girl, but he falls in love with Charlotte, and then uh, she's unfortunately betrothed to an older guy named or Albert, and she marries Albert, and Werther kills himself. That's the end of the book, that he borrows a pistol from the husband of his beloved, and he shoots himself. That book was not only a great bestseller in Germany, it caused young men to kill themselves. That the effect of Goethe's writing, his poetry, and the romantic impulses, this is in the late 18th century when this book came out, so we're entering romanticism, caused a wave of suicides all over here. Just one book. This is the potency of art. This is how it affects what you're all doing right now. So the notion that the sciences should be elevated over art, I think, is false. Because what artists try to do is explain human beings in a non-scientific way. I like to say as a creative writer, whether I'm writing a movie script or a novel, my job is to explain your heart to you. Not as a doctor does, but as an artist does. Can you be changed by a work of art? Surely you all know a movie that you resonates with you, that you see yourself as the hero of, and certainly do that when you're younger. Uh, comic books, even, you know, The Walking Dead, or even Rick Grimes on The Walking Dead. How would I react if I was suddenly in the zombie apocalypse? We place ourselves in these situations. All the time. It helps us find out who we are. It's a rite of passage for the entire culture. This all comes together in a way that's frightening. And I'm not entirely endorsing the artistic view of that should be the primary thing, because as I just pointed out with Nazi Germany, the notion of artistic recreation led them down a terrible path. It unleashed the demons of the 19th century to be released into the mechanized slaughter of the 20th century. Now, when art and science collude in an inimical way, we get the Holocaust. 
we get the slaughter of the Civil War, we get the atomic bombs in Japan. But do not underestimate the fact that the soldiers went into battle singing a song. That's what they wrote. They sang World War I songs, look them up. Those boys marched right into the teeth of machine gun fire, singing as a long way to Tipperary. That's what motivates us. It's not the clinical analysis. It's why we get so passionate. Because we feel it. We want to be the heroes of our own movement. So in this sense, I'm a Campbellian, who's at Joseph Campbell, who wrote a book called Hero of a Thousand Faces. If you haven't read that, you should certainly take a look at it. Because I think that is the Western story. We are the heroes. We want to be the heroes. We look in the mirror, you know, the joke is on the Senate side, every senator looks in the mirror in the morning and sees the President of the United States staring back at him. Well, they want something, don't they? They wouldn't spend all that time, money, energy, and suffer the humiliation and reversal of fortune were there not something larger to it. What we're looking at now here in the United States is a loss of this heroism. And in Devil's Pleasure Palace, I ascribe that to the Francis School of German Communist philosophers who came to attack the poor narrative, to attack the heroic narrative. Tell you, 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 you're not the hero, you're just a cog in the machine. You're a thing. It's the matrix, right there. That's all you're good for. So the theoreticians of the Frankfurt School, they were at the Puritan University. You see how these things, it, it's almost remarkable how they constantly connect. The Puritan University of Frankfurt could offer nothing but sweet utopian whisperings in the place of anything constructed. And here's the point, they preached freedom but brought only slavery. Self-actualization of all men, but instead reduced the populace of whole nations to the status of collaborators and clerks. That's Nazi Germany. Everybody was a clerk. I spent a great deal of time in the German Democratic Republic. You know what the primary occupation of people were? You spied on the That was your German. I spied on you, you spied on Kurt, you spied on him, you spied on him, you spied on the entire nation organized around the principle of riding out the other one. They guarantee peace but brought only the unending warfare that obtains when too much is never enough. The pursuits of earthly perfection, as Faust discovered, Faust by Goethe, murder, and death. However, charted up in their often impenetrable German terms of phrase, <laughs> at the root of the deceptive philosophy of the Frankfurt School. lay incitement and rage in the service of the quest for power over their fellow men. The devil always wears the same mask, and yet each generation must penetrate the disguise for itself or perish. And this brings me to the conclusion here. The Frankfurt School attacked your, our, shared culture. And they attacked it in ways that were very clever. They made the sexual revolution happen. Wilhelm Reich, who was part of the Hanger on at the Frankfurt School created the whole notion of sexual liberation. 
And where has that gone? Where did it go? Freedom wound up to be not so free. Herbert Marcuse was a philosopher from the Frankfurt School who stayed in America after the war and really created the student revolutions of 1968 uh, here in this country. What they wanted you to do is to stop being special. They told you you were special, but only you became part of it. And this insidious working on your education, because most of you younger than me and all younger than me, and created in your mind the notion that we have to play nice, we have to get along, we can't have any conflict, I can't stand up, oh, who am I to do this? Who are you to say that? None of that is good. It pretends to be good, it is not good. So what I'm calling on you all to do is to rise up and re-embrace that heroic narrative, because that is your politics. Each one of you could be president of the United States. Have we learned that over the last that's 16 years or so? Oh, let's go back to, you know, go way back. It's a long time. I think about improbable presidencies. But anyone can be president of the United States. Anyone can have an effect on their conscience of music here. You know, like, I, I like to go home and play Beethoven songs on the piano. That's my idea of a good time. Or look at my cows out the window. But I've come back into the spray because at my age, I've seen what's happened to our country, and I love my country. And I think you all love your country too. So let's try to re-embrace that knowledge of, of our mythic power, that people really are the powerful people here. The communist notion that it's all special elites and secret clubs and cabals and cells. Liberate yourself from the liberators. I'll close with this. There's a, well, Wagner's last opera is Parsifal. Parsifal is uh, uh, a very strange work. It's, it's like all Wagner is quite long. It's about five hours long, performance with admission. Uh, but it's about the perfect fool who must redeem sin. <clears throat> He's a knight, and a knight of the Holy Grail. It's an opera about the Holy Grail. Women, aren't we all in search of the Holy Grail? We're all in search of the Holy Grail. That's the thing that drives the quest of the hero forward. However fine grail, it's the thing that drives the hero forward. And the curious thing about Parsifal is that it's an opera about a redeemer who must be redeemed. The Adelizum and Adelizum, as the Germans say, the redemption of the redeemer. Even in one of our greatest works of art, which elevates the hero, the hero himself must be redeemed. We're all fallen. We are all children of Eve outside the garden, and our job is to get back. So you can do this, you can all do this together, individually, in collaboration. Read, acculturate yourself, don't let them cut you off from your culture. That is the greatest sin that's been committed against you. Reconnect with it, read, listen, engage works of art that you never thought would be fun because it seemed like home. It's not. It's vital. It's your life. So with that, let's uh, get some questions. Uh, if, if anyone has, I'm happy to discuss any of these things. Uh, and just emphasize again that you cannot live without culture. You are not a person. You're not fully human. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much.
very much for this uh, interesting and insightful uh, presentation. And I actually come, a quarter of my life is head of the social society in Georgia country. And another quarter I spend in the United States. Um, and so I definitely see that, that the differences in culture, how they alongside, like, who are you to speak and to say something? And here it's the opposite. We, we want to hear you. So um, I totally agree with what you said. Uh, could you please also define what culture is for you based on this context? Yeah, uh, it's, we talked a little bit about pop culture and high culture. And thanks for bringing that up. I think there's really no difference. Um, there is culture that comes from the people. Um, most high culture today, you know, you think, oh my God, it's a teacher with Otto, like, well, I'm saying. Funny for That was popular art. Italians know that. Verdi was the great popular composer of his day. Wagner uh, was more of a political thing to use the arts to advance his political program. But most art starts out as popular culture and then it bubbles out. Now, I'm not truly partial to contemporary music, but why would I be? I'm too old for it. Whereas my children, that is the one that they swing in. To the culture. I mean, for example, here's an example from the Middle Ages. There's a tune called The Armed Man. Speaking of arms and the man, right? The Armed Man. Loma Alme. Uh, it was the most popular melody in medieval France and all over Europe. It's used in countless masses. Okay? So this is a little bit like writing a sacred cantata on the themes of Jay Z, I guess, or something that you wouldn't think of putting this together with that. And yet in the Middle Ages, the long arm masses, you see it over and over and over and over again. An example of pop culture rising to the level of high culture. Now it seems old and dusty and superannuated, but it was very vital at the time to make pop culture. I don't I don't look down on those pop culture, far from it. Anybody else? Yes, sir. In the Western world, Western tradition, you say that the family is the basis of culture and politics. Yet, yeah. in current times, the traditional family has been assaulted; it's being torn down. Is there a way to reconcile that with while regaining culture? Yeah, I think there is actually, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not going to take either side in this particular argument because I think family is the basis of civilization, and that's an irrefutable historical fact. However, defined, but we generally define things as they most commonly are in this case, the man and the children. That is the unit of society around which people form themselves. Now, how they divvy that up, it's up to them. If we think back to Greek society, the, the, every man in Greek polis was expected to be a hoplite, that is, a fighting man. The Greeks organized their battles so they didn't go on forever. They, they, they were one-day events, and the hoplites all dressed up, and they had their shields, and they formed in their phalanxes, and you protected the guy here, and your sword hand was free, and you went out, and you fought, won, and died, and you went home. And the women children stayed in, until the boys were old enough to fight. That's how they organized that society. We would say, well, it's sexist, and it's great, whatever, it isn't one years. But it worked for them. What works for us is fine. And I think alternative family structures, as long as they're family structures, as long as that loyalty to kin, 
however defined, is it atomized? And what my complaint with Frankfurt School is it atomizes that very thing. It tries to make you think you're part of an anonymous pie when you're not. Our, our polis is made up of units, starting with you, your family, other people, your friends, families, etc. So I think we can engage on that issue without seeming that we're calling for some, you know, Bible Belt morality or ancient Roman proclivity, whatever. Let's just use it. Who else? Yes. Oh, sorry. I got a couple But within the Athenian democracy, they argued tremendously, and, 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 and they would banish people. Yeah, that's a, those, are, those are great questions. I, I think as far as conflict is concerned, <coughs> as you know, the Greek city-states were conflict with each other all the time, so there wasn't even a sense of shared Hellenism. You don't really get that until Hellenistic civilization. That's the point of Alexander's favor. Yes. Yes, they were cities, and, and, and again, as we said, they, they would banish people and they would have uh, now, that was the second question, sir. Uh, the reason that you chose the Yeah, it, it's, it, this is an interesting point. I make this in Devil's Bite, Palace. I use the famous Goya, Secret Reason for Monsters. So, the 19th century is so crucial for all of you to understand. You don't know what happened in the 20th century, unless you know where it came from. It came from the middle of the 19th century. It comes from German Romanticism. It comes from Karl Marx and Wagner. John Barzon wrote a book about this, Darwin, Marx, and Wagner. The three critical theorists all published major things the same year. Now, this is the zeitgeist at work. The combination of reason and emotion is it's, it's explosive, obviously, to the kind of larger reason, I think, which you're asking for. So, yes. Uh, I don't really know. In, this, in the next book, I'm, I'm looking more deeply into the artistic basis of Western civilization and addressing the issue that I end Devil's Pleasure Palace on, which is how do we get back to the garden of however divine? How, now that we've become human beings, how do we actually rise to the thing that the serpent promised Eve? What did the serpent promise Eve? No. Ye shall be as God. 
regularly. Yeah, you have to do work enough to do anything, you have to work close. Yeah, take a bite of this apple, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. It brings evil into the equation of humanity. So, how now that we're fully human, we have to deal with both sides of our nature. And that's what politics is all about, isn't it? Yeah, I have. Huh. Do you want to name any specific biblical heroes? Oh, David, Joshua, Solomon. Yes. One of the arguments I make in the Devil's Pleasure Palace is that a lot of the up through including Christ, uh, these heroes resonate because they fall in the line of the heroic narrative, right? And what the heroic narrative also includes one other element I, I, I forgot to mention, which is very often the hero doesn't know he's the hero for a while, right? Which is why Christianity spread so far and so fast is that the Christ myth, story, legend, dogma, call it what you will, Includes all of these elements. He's born. Something special about him. He doesn't, in the narrative, he doesn't really know what it is. He finds that he's a prodigy. He, he preaches in the temple. He only later in the narrative comes to the realization that he may be God himself, that he is God himself, however you choose. But that is the classic heroic narrative. Each one of the heroes of old is born often into humble circumstances. They're found in the forest. Uh, they're adopted, so they don't know their biological parents. And they come to this self-realization, which then becomes self-actualization, which leads them on their path to heroism. So I think the reason that the, both the Jewish and the Christian Bible stories resonate so strongly is because they conform to myths that go back, in some cases, thousands of years before those stories. We've got time for a couple more questions. Uh, yes, sir, do that. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call it superior culture, but what I would call it is culture uh, that works for the people who use it. Uh, I don't define culture racially, ethnically, or any other way. I think what the Western culture has to offer, in particular, uh, is in part advantaged by its geographical location, uh, by the necessity of responding to a hostile or inimical climate. Uh, something in Western civilization that a civilization that causes uh, questing. The quest is really the key to the heroic narrative. I'm on a mission, right? Like the Blues Brothers, they're on a mission. Okay, so what is that mission, and how do I find it, how do I self-realize that, self-actualize that mission? And I think, as I mentioned in the case of India, and certainly other places around the world, that it's not specifically Western in any kind of ethnic sense, but rather it's open to all. That is the fundamental conservative, liberal position that we need to take with our culture. It must be open to all. That's, that's uh, I come from Ukraine, yes. so I studied in school in Ukraine, and I have a very interesting view on arts in the school because we were taught a lot of it, uh, literature, music, 
that aren't anything. And um, <clears throat> what I want to make a comment, and maybe you will have something to say about it, is that uh, art is a very useful tool for propaganda. Yes. And you have to be very careful with it. So again, like art uh, science, you have to still be very careful picking this. Uh, the substance of art classes, again, if it's in schools, universities, anywhere else. And I think the people in power that are making these decisions in the educational sphere will have a lot of influence on them, the young minds. Well, I think you're right. I can speak to your publishers. I've spent a lot of time in Moscow and Leningrad. Uh, Soviet art was designed to help create the new Soviet man. As long as we're all confessing our connection with the Russian sense of stuff, I can tell you this. Um, I, I, um, I was hosted at a lunch in my honor by a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party in Moscow. So I'm totally a secret agent of the Russian uh, conspiracy. But I spent a lot of time going to Soviet art. In fact, I was invited by this member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party to go to one of his authors, Tikhon Kremlin. It's terrible. And all of those Soviet operas that were used to propagandize you are gone. They will never be performed again. They, they weren't real. So it's the manipulation of, of the art that's the danger, not the art itself. The art itself is, in a, in a strict sense, amoral. I never judge works of art morally. I judge them as by effectiveness and by the emotional uh, presentation. <clears throat> There are a lot of elements of culture in, uh, in a lot of people, in many people. Uh, jury, for example, family, mm -hmm. honor. I wonder why you pick up only on heroism or heroic to make the basis of the culture that I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, number two, uh, can you uh, look into, have you made an inventory of other cultures maybe? Uh, like he, African culture, for example, and determine that they have, they don't have, or they have those elements in those. Say, for example, if you limit yourself only to heroism, did you look into other cultures like the African culture, for example, to see if there's those traits in that culture? Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, it, in yeah. fact, uh, no, I, I don't think we have sort of any culture other than Western culture. Uh, obviously, I'm interested in other cultures, but the, the point of Devil's Touch Culture is a rather short book. Uh, the strictly Western culture and Western world. You're absolutely correct that duty, honor, country, and the Marine Corps motto uh, is part of heroism. And, you know, I guess my point that I'll make and we'll wrap up is that both the military side and the artistic side come together in unique and very potent ways. And by not being aware of the artistic side, we only see the science and military side then we are missing out on half the story of how we got here. Real quick, yeah. You mentioned several examples of artists using their platform to uh, create a political aim or message. And I wanted to ask, in many instances, did they receive as much pushback as they do? Recently, we have artists who use their uh, award acceptance speeches yeah. to make political statements, and they are receiving a lot of pushback that they should stick to what they know. Is it, in your opinion, you they were no street, right? for example, yeah. is it your opinion, is it because they're not creating a deliverable of a piece of art that has an aim, or is it because they're just as people, individual, making statements? Right. I have to answer real quickly. 
where the people that tell the actors what to say. And if they don't have the lines written by me and my colleagues in, in the Hollywood, they're on their own. So they're actors, right? They're, the creative artists put their passion into the actual art. She's a great actress. Thank you so much for coming, everybody. I'm 
Take a photo with hey, Michael. Can you join us? Yes. I didn't want to make sure he has a title. Okay. He has a working man's speech. Yeah, don't play, sir. Thank you. 